Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Dr. John Began, who's running for office in Texas' 24th Congressional District, where he's hoping to be the first neuroscientist elected to Congress. John Began, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're a teacher and a neuroscientist. People might be wondering, why with those professions have you thought, do you know what, politics is calling, I'm going to run for office in Texas? Yeah, so um, that was never the plan. The plan was to go and do research and help people that way and teach and help people that way. Uh, The plan was really never to get into politics. But there were a few things that happened. One of them was 2016 happened. And um, when everything happened here in the United States, it was a really uh, heartbreaking moment when when Donald Trump was elected for at least for me. And um, my wife and I had made a mistake. We in October of that year, we got a little excited. It was a happy time. October 2016 was much happier than uh, November. And we requested tickets to the inauguration. So the way that it works is you request through your Congress, your uh, congressional representative, and you ask them for tickets, and you, you go into a pool, and if your name gets drawn, then you you get tickets. Um, well, ultimately, I did get tickets, but for a very different inauguration than I thought I was going to. So my wife and I, we weren't sure what we were going to do, but we ultimately decided to go. Um, we knew it would be historic, and I think it was. Um, and then the next day was the Women's March. And the Women's March, uh, which was the real reason that we ultimately decided to go for that trip, uh, was inspiring. It was this fantastic moment where you saw tons and tons and tons of people come together, yes, against Donald Trump, but also for these ideals that we had seen kind of being eroded away. And seeing that was, was inspirational and being a part of that was inspirational. And my wife and I were talking later that, that evening, and I said, you know, we've, we've helped candidates before. We've block walked. We've uh, made phone calls. We've donated money, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I want to do more. And so we tried to determine what's the way that we do that. And it seemed like um, Congress was the best fit for a few reasons. A lot of our uh, science funding, which is where I see a lot of cuts uh, taking place. The Trump administration has really pushed for a lot of cuts. Uh, at the at the National Institutes of Health, National Science Foundation, uh, Environmental Protection Agency, CDC, et cetera, et cetera. Those happen at the federal level. So that to me was was an important area uh, to, to go in and address some concerns. So, um, yeah, I decided I'm going to learn everything I know or I can find about politicking and campaigning and read every book that I possibly can on policy. Because I know that the background that I have in neuroscience and specifically the neuroscience of aging is something that is sorely lacking in Congress right now. So I shored up the rest of the stuff that um, I was interested in but didn't have the same depth of knowledge. And I uh, have just been going strong ever since. Recently, you responded to a tweet from Ava Putsover who's actually been a guest on this show and is running in Arizona's first congressional district about how she believes the DCCC and DSCC, so that's the Democratic Congressional Campaigns Committee, the Democratic Senatorial Campaigns Committee, are helping former Republicans win. 
You said that everyone should check out their preferred candidate to see just how progressive they actually are. So we're going to put you to the test here. <laughs> In 60 seconds, can you tell voters how progressive you are and why you're the progressive candidate for them? Yeah, uh, 60 seconds. Okay. So I believe in getting to universal health care. Um, I have spent some time in the um, medical realm, and I have a background there that I think can really, really help us to achieve that. Because um, I was talking to a student the other day, he's a sixth grade student uh, at my my wife's school, and he said he liked my campaign. And I said, why? And he said, because no one should go without um, medical care. Nobody should not be able to go to the doctor when they need to. And I think that's a really simple way to look at that. Um, it's a complex system, but it's a system that we can change. So I am 100% uh, behind getting to universal coverage. I also fully support the Green New Deal um, and uh, have some plans on how to achieve that, how we get to a point where we truly address climate change I have plans to make sure that college is affordable, that everybody can go uh, and get whatever education it is that they need. For me, I teach at community colleges. I have students with kids. I want universal on-campus childcare um, at our community colleges. That way they can truly afford to go because the cost of childcare often outweighs the cost of tuition, books, et cetera, for most of my students. And that is a massive barrier that I wanna get, uh, get past. On that issue of education, you and your wife are both teachers in Texas, 24th Congressional District. You're a native to the district. That's the district that you're living in. How much experience of the U.S. education system nationally, but also in particular in that district, shaped your views on the issues when it comes to the education system? What needs to be changed? What's affected your ability to, and your wife's ability to give your students the best education you can do. Sure, yeah, there are a few things. At the federal level, following the election of George W. Bush in the early 2000s, um, what we saw was there was, a, uh, there was a bill that was passed. It was called uh, No Child Left Behind. You might have heard of that one. Uh, no Child Left Behind, part of it was uh, really focused on state testing, mandatory state testing. So we have these really, really intense state tests that all of the students have to go through. And it's incredibly stressful. Um, it's stressful for the students, it's stressful for the parents, it's stressful for the teachers. They end up spending a week or two every year prepping for these tests, which is time that could be spent teaching instead. And then oftentimes, teachers are graded and their raises or their ability to keep their job is based on how their students perform on these tests. That high stakes testing environment, which also costs a whole lot of money, um, serves little to no purpose. It has not improved our educational system, but instead it stresses people out. It takes up time and money. And we can change that law at the federal level and then let the state of Texas decide what's the appropriate way to assess your kids. We had assessments before No Child Left Behind because I was in the Texas educational system before that, we had testing, but it wasn't the same, the same level of kind of high stakes testing. So that's a big, big change that we talk about on a regular basis. Another one um, has to do with um, access again to higher education. And in higher education, having, having taught around here for uh, years and years, I've seen so many of my students who uh, miss class or they have to 
bring their kids to class with them. You know, you see those viral videos of the professor who's holding the child during class so that the, the student can, um, the, the parent can uh, take an exam. That is not uncommon. That is a pretty regular thing. I have a friend who she takes coloring books to class with her. Uh, and she's teaching, these are college students, but she te she brings coloring books because she knows that so many of her students are going to end up in that situation and she wants to work with them as best as possible. But we can fix that problem. We can make sure that there is universal on-campus childcare for all of these wonderful students so that the kids get a great environment uh, to learn in. They get you know good food while they're there and they're taken care of well while their parents go and get the education that they need. That issue in higher education, particularly a problem that you've mentioned on your issue section of your website, is the rising cost of tuition in America, which is making it harder and harder for individuals to secure a four-year degree. Mm -hmm. is often having that degree is associated with improved financial outcomes for the rest of the recipient's life, their ability to get certain jobs often relies on having some sort of higher education applications will ask for you to prove that you have that before they'll even consider you. What's your solution to the issue of rising costs? Would you push for free college, just capping the cost of college? Would you forgive existing debt? These are all policies that have been proposed. Mm -hmm. as well. What do you believe is the solution here? Yeah, so I don't think there's any one solution, but I think there's a combination of solutions that can get to it. So again, part of it is addressing all of the costs that go into college. So that's the childcare piece that I've talked about. It's also the, the rising cost of books. Uh, students often spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on, on books. Uh, there's legislation that's been pushed from Dick Durbin out of Illinois to address the, the rising cost of uh, books. Um, we also at the federal level, we have a thing called Pell Grants. Pell grants are usually used to help lower income individuals um, pay for, for college. We can expand that there. Um, um, as, as far as the, the debt piece goes, I can speak personally. I have, uh, I think right now it's about $65,000 worth of student debt. Uh, and I went to a state school. I went to a very nice state school just down the road. So that's in-state tuition. Um, for a bachelor's and part of a master's. I paid for the, the rest of the master's and the PhD as I was going through, but I still have that. And I've been paying on that for eight years now. And what that ultimately does, that's not just a drag on me, it's a drag on the economy because it makes it harder to get a mortgage. So it makes it harder to buy a home. It makes it harder to get a loan for a car. It, it becomes very, very um, challenging and very, very expensive as somebody is trying to establish their life and to set down roots to do that when they have all of this debt. So we have to do something there, um, be it um, doing some sort of forgiveness, either full or partial forgiveness, allowing people to refinance loans at zero to no interest uh, or low to no interest rates like we did for the big banks when we bailed them out. Um, there are there are a lot of different ways to get at this. And one of the challenges that we face at the federal level is the fact that tuition costs are generally set at the state level. And much of the money that goes into a state school, for example, comes from from the state, not from the federal government. So the federal government, unfortunately, can't completely wave its hand and say this is what rates are. 
um, we have to work with the state legislators. Um, but that is something that a lot of the ones around here, when I talk to them, they, they understand that um, these degrees are becoming unaffordable. And those benefits that we used to see where you make, you know, X number of dollars more because you have a bachelor's degree uh, versus, say, a high school diploma, those are not quite covering the cost anymore of that higher education. So we've got to find a way to offset that and to fix that. On the note of education, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're seeking to be the first neuroscientist elected to Congress. Do you mm -hmm. think that the American people would be better off if Congress was filled with experts like yourself in specialist fields who could offer an educated opinion on legislation? Yeah, um, I, I do. I mean, I'm a little biased because that's my background and it kind of serves me in this position to make that case. But um, when the, the way that I got to this was I was I was speaking with some friends who lobby uh, Congress and their staffers on science legislation specifically. And I asked them, I said, so what happens? Why are we getting such bad policy out of Congress? And they said, honestly, we go in there and they're all lawyers or business people or military vets. Uh, so about half of Congress are lawyers, um, about a quarter are military vets, about a quarter are business people. Uh, and there are some other things along the way. There are um, there are seven talk show hosts, for example, in there. Um, kind of an interesting field to have there. Um, there is one PhD level research scientist in Congress right now. Um, so not even just neuroscience, but any type of science. There's one right now. And they said when we go in and we try and talk to them about this, they just don't have that background to be able to consume the information that we're giving them. Now, if it was a question about uh, military intervention, if it was a question about something legal, if it's a business-related question, we've got experts already for those things in Congress. What we're lacking right now are experts in other fields, especially the sciences. Returning to the tweet that you were responding to from Ava Putsover that I mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of talk about how the DCCC and the DSCC have injected themselves into congressional races. You're not backed by either organization. Obviously, it would be the DCCC in your case, but you're not backed by the DCCC. You're running off your own back. Do you think these organizations have prevented progressive candidates like yourself, like others, from primarying established Democrats or just running in congressional races themselves? Obviously, you're running to replace a Republican. Mm -hmm. I think primarily what I've seen has been that the DSCC, the DCCC, they have um, they have a vision for what they think a winning candidate looks like. And they tend to focus primarily on can this candidate win and who's the who's the one that's going to win as opposed to who's the best person for this job. And that's the thing that disappoints uh, that disappoints me when I see. So that that tweet was really somewhat referencing the fact that they that the DSCC has recently injected themselves into the primary for the Senate race here in Texas. Now, there are about 12 excellent candidates in that race. Um, a lot of just fantastic people from incredibly progressive to former Republicans um, who hopefully have, have seen the light. We'll 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 pray for that. Um, but them getting involved in that 
does kind of take away um, people's autonomy to be able to go through and just select the person that fits best with them. And that was really the point of that tweet was, look, even if you if you want a centrist, if you want a moderate, if you want a far left progressive, if you want whatever it is you want, don't listen to someone else. Go look at the information for yourself and pick the candidate who speaks to you, the candidate who matches best with you. And I think if we would get away from that mindset of just do whatever the the um, uh, the national committee wants us to do or, you know, fit with this kind of pre-supposed um, version of what is a winning candidate or a winning candidacy, then I think we would make so much more progress in this country and um, and we would we would feel better about the process, too. Looking at what makes a winning candidate and whether a candidate can win a district is something that will matter when it comes to when mm -hmm. you're running in Texas, because you're running in a Republican plus nine district. It's not always been Republican, but it is a seat that is currently held by Republican. So how would you seek to convince people who've been voting for this Republican candidate for the last few years or people who haven't voted at all to support you. Uh, so yes and no. The, so the good news is he has decided not to run for re-election. So it's an open seat. Uh, now, of course, there will be Republicans, and there's a Republican that he is specifically backing. So there's a little bit of that. But it will be an open seat, so that does help a bit. Uh, the other thing is um, my, my background is not only in neuroscience, but I do some data science work as well. And when you look at the numbers... This number or this this district is the most flippable district in Texas. It's right on the edge. Um, last year, uh, the the Democrat lost by three points, which was better than the 17 point loss the year before. So it moved in the right direction, and that was in a midterm, which generally is worse for Democrats. Those are usually tougher because our turnout doesn't boost up as much as in a presidential year traditionally. Um, and at that same time, we had people running statewide. So we can look at different candidates who ran statewide and how did they do in this district. And in that case, uh, you've probably heard of Beto O'Rourke. Uh, so Beto won this district by three points. Uh, there's also a gentleman you may not have heard of named Justin Nelson. Justin Nelson was running for attorney general. He won this district by one point. So there are multiple Democrats who have already convinced uh, people in this district to vote for them, the majority of people to vote for them. When we're out on the campaign trail and we're talking to voters, we don't have party registration here. So for the primary, we tend to focus on Democrats, but we run into a lot of Republicans and independents as well. And when we talk to them, one thing that resonates really, really well is that because of my science background, I follow the evidence. I'm all for evidence-based policymaking. And so what that means is I have a goal. My goal is universal health care. My goal is um, addressing climate change. My goal is affordable education. If you can show me that your way of accomplishing that goal is better, then I will follow that, regardless of whether or not it's a Democratic uh, version or it's a Republican version. I'm just going to follow the evidence. And that is something that has resonated well with those people that think, oh, you're just going to get in and do whatever Nancy Pelosi tells you to do. Instead, I can say, no, look, if 
if Democrats are wrong on something, if the evidence doesn't support what they're saying, I'm not going to support it. If the evidence does support it, though, then I gladly will. And if the evidence supports something that's more of a Republican or independent ideal, I will follow that as well. That really, really uh, resonates. And it's something that here a lot of people are yearning for because they are so sick and tired of the ideological extremes and individuals who just get up there and don't necessarily know what they're talking about and instead just follow the party line. While that's a position that most voters would be supportive of, seeing a representative who says, I'm going to put country above party rather than party above country, which is something that many people probably feel has been lacking in recent years in politics. We've seen the Republican Party ardently refuse to take that approach. That was clear in the impeachment vote that happened in the House, where instead of looking at the evidence or any of them being even potentially swayed by that, they made it very clear that they would completely back the president and the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Do you think that having individuals like yourself who are willing to take that evidence-based approach, while honorable, is concerning for some Democrats because they say the Republicans will always stand by the Republican ideology. And while you might be doing what you believe is right for your constituents and your voters, you might end up costing the Democrats a vote or getting a Democratic issue across the line because you've gone for what might be in a Republican initiative. Um, and I can understand that concern, but I think at the end of the day, our, my goals align completely with the Democratic Party. Again, addressing climate change, um, full access to, to health care, access to quality, affordable public education. So my goals align. So if I am I don't, switching sides, so to speak, or if I am working with Republicans on something that maybe uh, does not align at that moment with um, with the Democrats, I'm not entirely worried about that because it's still going to accomplish the goal, right? We're still working toward the same goal. Um, what I would hope is that in that circumstance, I can go and work with those Democrats and explain why I've decided to uh, work on this initiative that's, that's a little different than what they would normally think. And hopefully, given my background and expertise, I can bring them over and instead of it being I crossed over and helped out the Republicans. I'm hoping that it's we can all come together and work on something that's bipartisan. One issue that you support that would have to be bipartisan if it was to be successful in mm. Congress is the issue of gun control, something that's very sensitive in the state of Texas. A lot of Texans are very defensive of their Second Amendment rights. There's the support of the NRA that we've seen in that area and people pushing for open carry and the right to have limited gun control in that state because they believe that gun control impacts on their Second Amendment right. What would you say to people in your district who would claim that your support for the Second Amendment doesn't square up with any support that you have for gun control measures that would limit their ability to access or purchase firearms? Yeah, so I have this discussion with friends and family all the time. Look, I grew up shooting. I've shot everything from a BB gun to an Uzi. And it's Texas, right? <laughs> so um, 
while I have shot a lot of things and I believe I don't believe in you know going through and taking away people's guns, I know that there are reasonable measures that can save a ton of lives. And what's interesting is when you really talk to people one on one, and it's not just the shouting match um, across Twitter or across social media, but instead we sit down and we talk to them, even the most ardent NRA supporters generally support universal background checks. Um, in fact, my uh, a close family member of mine is a uh, big Trump supporter. He's a big uh, supporter of the NRA, uh, et cetera. When I have questions about guns, I call him because I want to really talk this through and see what does that sound like from his point of view. He has a lot of information about guns, and he's been great. He's been really open talking about these things. And when I talk to him, he says, um, look, we've got to have universal background checks. I fully support universal background checks. I've been through this for concealed carry in three different states. This is a thing that we need. And it's a reasonable thing. It's something that most gun owners go through already. So we're not even talking about uh, changing something for the vast majority of gun owners. We're changing it about uh, changing it for that small group of gun owners who currently avoid the background check system. Now, if we did that, if we fully implemented it, we implemented it correctly where the system was accurate all the time uh, when those checks were run, it's estimated that we would cut gun deaths in the United States by half. That's huge for something as simple as expanding background checks to make sure that everybody gets checked out, to make sure that only those who should be allowed to carry can carry. We could cut gun deaths in half. How amazing is that? And that's something that is pretty largely supported even among NRA members. Um, the next one is if you expanded that and you did those universal background checks now on ammunition uh, as well. So anytime somebody goes in to purchase ammunition, that increases the uh, the the lives saved to 80%. So we could cut gun deaths in the United States by 80% with universal background checks and universal background checks on ammunition purchases. Those are completely reasonable. We're not taking anyone's guns away, but we are saving tons and tons of lives. And that's something that really does resonate even with the most ardent NRA members that I speak with. I've known a few extremists and especially some politicians who disagree with those things, but the vast majority of even Texans and ardent Second Amendment supporters are completely on board with these things. We saw that, as you mentioned, Beto O'Rourke, although he made this comment after his Senate run, managed to win the districts that you're running in at the moment. He's very much on the side of being in favor of stricter gun control legislation. You talked about universal background checks there. Would there be any weapons that you would outright ban, prevent people from having? Would you ban assault rifles, for example? Would you ban certain additions that people can make to guns that make them fire faster, for example, types of bullets? Would you be looking at preventing access to those as well as the background checks? Oh, by all means. And we've done this in the past. We did this with the Hellfire triggers back in the 90s, which essentially converted um, a semi-automatic weapon into a fully automatic uh, weapon. Similarly, uh, I support the ban on the bump stocks that we saw out of Las Vegas that allowed somebody to shoot much, much faster than you could traditionally shoot. Um, and yes, I support a um, 
a ban on assault weapons going forward, much the way that we did in 1986 with the ban on um, uh, fully automatic weapons going forward. We do still have fully automatic weapons in the United States, but they're highly, highly regulated. Um, and we don't import new ones. They're only the old ones. Um, that is something that I would support. Um, now, where I do disagree with Beto a little bit is on the retroactive piece. Uh, I'm fine with a, um, a voluntary buyback program, but a mandatory buyback program is not something that, um, that I would support at this time. Uh, the evidence doesn't show that the, um, the number of lives saved for the difficulty to implement that and the potential lives lost in implementing that would, would work out. Uh, again, universal background checks on uh, guns and ammunition gets you to 80% reduction in gun deaths in the United States. That's really where I want to focus and really want to start. Uh, but certainly after that, uh, yes, like I said, anything that's going to modify something into a weapon that's already banned should be illegal. If you can't legally go buy a fully automatic weapon, you shouldn't be able to convert a semi-automatic weapon into, an, into a fully automatic weapon. The other controversial topic that exists in Texas is that of immigration and border security. They're both important issues for folks in Texas, and you believe that immigrants are valuable contributors to America's economy and society. They're human beings deserving respect and dignity. Those words from your website. Donald Trump has taken a different approach. He's persecuted immigrants, something that Republicans have defended, and he's made it harder for them to come to America. What would you say in defense of your position to people who'd argue that because you support giving immigrants a legal path to entry into the United States, you're weak on border security? Well, the first thing I would say is I grew up on the border and most of the people saying that and have never been to the border. So I'm going to start there. Um, I know what I'm talking about. I grew up in El Paso, right on the border. It was an immigrant community. It was a fantastic community, one of the safest in the nation. So when I hear people say things about uh, immigrants bringing crime and, and the like, that is not true in any way. Uh, it's not what I experienced growing up. And it is just a talking point to try and scare people into voting for someone that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, you know, it's funny that the person who's most anti-immigrant is the guy from New York, not the guy from Texas. <laughs> when you're in Texas, when you're here, you understand um, immigration in a much different way. In fact, when polling was done on Trump's wall proposal, uh, his border wall proposal. What they found is it played really, really well in Ohio and Pennsylvania and the Midwest. It didn't play that well in Texas because we actually know what's going on here. Um, so here, that has not been nearly as controversial, even though it is Texas, um, as, it, as it would sound. Uh, a lot of people here know people who are either currently working in the shadows or who have gone through the immigration process. And they're much more familiar with how, uh, with, with, with the good and the bad that uh, has happened with our immigration system. So great thing is here, we don't have to fight that as much because we actually see it. We know what's going on. When it comes to the proposals that have been put in for board security, obviously one of them is Donald Trump's billion dollar border wall. It's estimated it would cost tens of billions of dollars 
Why would that not be an effective solution? And why would it be problematic for communities like El Paso, which famously has individuals who move across the border? Why would that be a wrong approach to take? Well, so some of it is simply that uh, there's no reason for it. It, it doesn't. It wouldn't serve a purpose. Um, the areas that currently don't have any walls or fencing, because a lot of the border does in strategic areas, but a lot of these other areas are mountain ranges <laughs> and things, places where people are not traditionally going to pass because there are these um, geographical barriers already. Um, so it, it's kind of a waste. It's kind of um, a uh, it's a solution in search of a problem more than it is really addressing any real issue there. Um, so that's one of the biggest reasons is we already have fencing in strategic locations where we need it. Um, we have already beefed up um, border control, control and border security in uh, Texas, as well as in Arizona, New Mexico, and other border states. Um, so there's not really a purpose to it. There's not really a point. No one has said, here is this area where we're seeing a lot of uh, immigration that's not coming through you know, one of our traditional ports. We need to put something here. That's not what's going on. It's really just Trump said, hey, let's put a wall there. He kind of popped into his head. He said, let's put a wall there instead of looking to see if strategically that makes any sense whatsoever. But that's kind of Donald Trump anyway. One of the other issues that Donald Trump has launched into attacking when it comes to immigration is the DREAM Act and going after dreamers in America. You support the passage of the DREAM Act. Why is that important? And for those that don't know, what is this issue here? What are these dreamers who are at risk of losing their ability to be in the United States? Yeah, so a little history on that. That act and the Dream Act, which is a federal proposal that's uh, that they've been trying to pass for nearly 20 years now, started um, from Texas actually. So it was a Texas case that kind of led to this. There was a young woman who applied for and was admitted into West Point. Uh, West Point is a big military academy here. It's very very prestigious, and ultimately she ended up finding out that, unbeknownst to her. She had come over when she was very, very young, before she she was able to remember, um, with her parents and was undocumented. And so here is this person who was good enough to get into West Point, who is somebody that clearly we want to be part of our society. And as far as she knew, she was until she found out that there was this family secret that she had not been told, which was that she was undocumented. And that led people here in Texas to say, look, there's something wrong here. There's a problem when we've got somebody that's this good and we're not finding a way to make sure that they are part of society. And so that's really where the DREAM Act came from. Um, and it's to support all of those uh, those kids who were brought over uh, with their parents who are now part of this society uh, generally who have gone to school here both for um, uh, primary and secondary school as well as uh, college and university and who are part of the society and have not uh, gotten into any legal troubles or anything like that. It's all these people that we really, really want to be a part of this society. They're here. And so what the DREAM Act says is that they would get to stay, broadly speaking. 
Um, and something that we want to tack on is with a pathway to citizenship. So not just being able to legally stay, but being able to legally stay and become a citizen here. The signature piece of legislation that has been passed by Republicans over the last few years was a tax cut for the wealthy. And now for listeners, I promise this is an interesting topic. I realize that taxation might be something that people go, oh, not this again. But it is a really interesting area that affects everyone's lives. And how unjust is the tax system in America where ordinary people are paying their fair share, but corporations are in some cases this year paying naught dollars in mm-hmm. taxation? Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And it's not just corporations, but also also uh, wealthy individuals. So um, this year, I believe, was the first time uh, either in quite a long time or in history uh, here in the United States that the top 400 individuals in the United States paid a lower effective tax rate than everyone else. And that's kind of ridiculous. That is not a progressive tax system. Uh, that is just one that benefits the wealthy and leads to increased uh, debts and deficits as we go forward. Um, I think that this is a place where Democrats need to take a little more leadership. Traditionally, taxation has been something that it feels like the Republicans have really worked on. Now, Democrats did some things in the 90s um, using taxation in order to get some kind of social programs passed, but without um funding them through the traditional budgetary process. Um, What should have happened, because we were due for a tax overhaul. In the United States, about every 30 years or so, we overhaul the tax system because we keep adding and adding and adding a whole bunch of deductions, which means more and more loopholes. And um, what we ultimately need to do is to clear out some of those loopholes. And as a result of that, we can usually lower the tax rates. So we offset. So people aren't seeing a huge change. It's just kind of cleaning up. The tax code, but we're keeping things again in that progressive taxation system where if you have a little bit more, we're going to ask you to put in a little bit more because you can afford it. Uh, if you don't, then you don't have the money, unfortunately, to be able to put in. So we're going to ask you to put in less. Um, that's that's a reasonable thing. And it's just the way that math works. <laughs> it's just if you got to pay for stuff, that's the only way that it works. Um, unfortunately, a you know flat tax which is almost effectively what we're at right now, just doesn't work. It doesn't end up paying for things because you have so much concentration of wealth at the top. If you're not taxing that at an appropriate rate, there's no possible way that you can pay for things. Do you have an idea of what that taxation system would be, what the sort of rates you would be looking for people to pay, corporations to pay, et cetera? Do you have an idea of how that should look to make it a – fairer system for all and the ordinary person out in Texas? So I think we can start with corporations who are currently paying nothing, paying something. I would like to see that. Um, It's a low bar, but let's, you know, let's start where we can. Um, No, I'm not sure what the the specific rates would be. That would have to go through the CBO and and be scored and everything. But something that is more of a progressive uh, tax system. Um, I don't know that we have to soak the rich with, uh, you know, 60 and 70 percent tax rates at the moment. But uh, certainly more than zero (laughs) is, is a good place to start. 
in conclusion, why should voters back you in Texas' 24th congressional district as the Democratic nominee and ultimately as their representative from the state? Yeah, so I think if you believe in science, if you believe in education, if you believe in healthcare, you should probably vote for the only candidate in this race that has each of those. Uh, there are no other scientists in this race. There are no other educators in, the, in this race. And there are no other um, people with a healthcare background in this race. If you appreciate evidence-based policymaking, so following the evidence and fixing problems that way, then that's my background. That's what I've spent more than a decade of my life doing. And so I think I would be a, a good fit there as well. So if those are things you value, then I think it's a pretty easy decision. Dr. John Began, thank you for joining me. Yes, thank you so much. My pleasure. That was Dr. John Began, who's running for office in Texas' 24th congressional district, where he is hoping to be the first neuroscientist elected to Congress. You can find out more about him on Twitter at Began for Congress and his campaign at BeganforCongress.com. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye. 